This is Demo Crises. Democracy, Demography, and Demoralization. I'm Rob Cohen, physician, army veteran, scientist, and your host. We're very pleased today to welcome Dr. Jay Brennan, the author of Against Democracy, which if you're concerned about democracy right now, would be a great read for you. I read it in a weekend. I found it entertaining and thought-provoking, which is not always easy to do. Um, I'd like to spend about 15 minutes defining the problem, but of course, we're here to talk about solutions, specifically your solution. And so we, we really want to get to that. As my first question for you, so you, you were a skeptic of democracy before it was cool. This book was published in September 2016 before people were really too concerned about what might happen. And yet you live in a society that holds democracy sacred. So can you tell us the story of, of when and why you started to question democracy and how your thinking has evolved since then? You know, I wish I could tell you that there was uh, something that happened, you know, like democracy came and beat up my mom and then I knew that it was a problem. But it wasn't in reaction to an event. It was in reaction to noticing a disparity in the way that people think about democracy versus what political scientists know about it. So when people out in the streets say the word democracy, they hear angels sing going, ah, and they genuflect and they make the sign of the cross. And uh, But nevertheless, their model of democracy that they have is just out of whack with what we know about how it actually works. So I wanted to just take democracy down a notch and try to have a more realistic picture of, of what's good about it and what's bad about it. And then coincidentally, when the book came out, we had Brexit, we had Trump, we had a number of uh, populist crises throughout Europe. So I just kind of, in a sense, lucked out <laughs> that it was uh, apropos to our times. So when do you think you started to question? I mean, there was a time you didn't, you weren't born questioning democracy. Yeah, I think it was, you know, back in graduate school, uh, what I noticed, I, I was being trained as a philosopher in a program that heavily emphasizes integrating in economics and political science. And I noticed that what philosophers say about democracy and what economists say are very different. So philosophers work with these very idealistic models um, about what it's supposed to do. And then economists and political scientists tell us how it in fact behaves. And there's a massive disparity there. So I started to wonder, well, if the major arguments that people give about why we're supposed to have democracy, if the argument that your sixth grade civics teacher told you is based upon like an empirical mistake, if it's not actually how democracy works, then well, what is it good for? Why should we have it? Okay. Yeah. Now, now that question uh, did not arise in a vacuum, however. Even Plato was heavily influenced by the times around him. All philosophers are. And so what, what year was that? Give us some so, uh, Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not a historian of philosophy, but we're talking about in the like 300s BC. Uh, you know, Plato was a skeptic about democracy. His, uh, his mentor Socrates very famously was executed for – bad reasons. Though, you know, when we, when we read accounts, we have a number of different people talking about what Socrates was up to, and his enemies are more skeptical about him than his friends. But supposedly Socrates was going around uh, Athens and just asking people, you know, you say you're a pious person. Can you explain to me what piety is? You say that you're a just person. You're the leader of the country. Can you say what justice is? And people couldn't answer very basic questions about this. This caused a great deal of anger because he seemed to be exposing people's flaws. And then they eventually charged him with corrupting the youth and believing in false gods uh, and then voted against him democratically to have him executed, which he accepted apparently with great grace. I was so I appreciate your telling that story. I was actually referring to you. What year did you? What, what year were you in grad school when you started to? Oh, question sorry these about things? that. Yeah, uh, I was in grad school from two thousand two to two thousand six. So, so basically, in the middle of the Bush administration, which yeah. was uh, which was certainly a problematic time for a lot of people. Okay, so and I, I'm glad you talked about Plato because we we talk about him a lot in our episode. So in in your book, um, a central part of your argument is that the typical voter in in a modern democracy comes in three basic flavors. 
what you call hobbits, hooligans, and Vulcans, which I, I think is, is uh, tongue-in-cheek, but is, um, is also uh, a poignant description. So can you describe these three archetypes and, and tell us how does the American electorate fall between them? Sure. So if you've ever read the Lord of the Ring novels or you've seen the films, then you remember that hobbits are uh, people that are not really concerned about the outside going on, goings on in the world. There's a cosmic struggle between the forces of good and evil, and they don't really care. They just want to eat breakfast, their second breakfast, their 11Zs, lunch and a snack, smoke their pipes, and kind of have a genteel British countryside lifestyle. Um, so the analog for this in politics would be the typical person who chooses not to vote in a modern democracy. When we look at those people, we find the following. They tend typically have very weak political opinions. Um, the opinions that they have are fleeting. They don't have an organized or coherent ideology. They might not be ideological at all. Um, their attachment to a political party is very weak. They don't participate very much, and they know basically nothing. If you ask them questions about just the basic facts about democracy, they don't know any of those. Um, they're just not very interested in politics. That's why. And then think about hooligans. If you've ever been to, say, a soccer game in a place where people really love soccer. I mean, I, I've been in Yankee Stadium wearing Red Sox gear and nothing has happened. But I've been in soccer games in countries where people love it. And there you can see violence between members of like, fans of different teams. So like in Sao Paulo, Brazil, they actually separate uh, fans from different teams and do different mm. sides of the stadium. They put up metal barricades and police officers. And you have to walk about three kilometers to get from one side to another because they know the groups have such a high degree of antagonism they might actually come to blows. And I, I saw it happen firsthand. They do. So uh, one thing about sports fans is they're better informed. They often can remember facts about games from 50 years ago. That's true. They know lots of statistics, but they're also incredibly biased in the way that they interpret those statistics. I don't mean biased in the sense of having an opinion. I mean biased in the way that when, say, Tom Brady is accused of uh, deflating footballs, everyone in New England says, no, of course he's innocent. They get the right answer. Um, and then everyone – I'm from New England, so I was about to say that. <laughs> I see. Uh, and then everyone from the rest of the country says he's guilty. Mm -hmm. It's not that we have access to different information. We interpret the information we have in a way that flatters what we'd like to believe. Mm -hmm. So the analog of that in politics would be the typical voter in the U.S. Those people tend to know more about politics. They tend to be much more interested. They have something closer to a stable ideology. They have stronger opinions. But they also have a high degree of antipathy towards those with whom they disagree. They hate people on the other side. They look for new sources that confirm their preexisting beliefs. They automatically dismiss anything they disagree with. Um, and they're basically emotionally invested in the process. And that's really – it's almost about 50-50 in terms of who's who. There's a, another hypothetical category I call Vulcans, which are supposed to be like in Star Trek, these dispassionate thinkers who um, don't have any loyalties to their beliefs. They just want to believe whatever the evidence supports. They think in a very scientific and logical way. Um, and I invoke them not because I think I'm a, I'm a Vulcan. It's not because I think the Vulcans should rule. But if you look at the theories of democracy that are out there – and the arguments for democracy that people give, they're often assuming that we're going to behave like Vulcans, that when we deliberate with one another, that we'll learn from each other and reach a compromise, that when we look at news sources or look for information, that we'll process that information in a rational way. But we don't. We're hobbits and hooligans. So democracy, as is every other political system, is the rule of hobbits and hooligans. And our theory about how it should work and what we should do with it should be based upon what voters are actually like. So you don't think there's... Um Anyone in the United States, let's say a, a famous politician who approximates the Vulcan ideal? I mean, I haven't seen a politician behave in a way that I think is particularly Vulcan-like. Um, almost every politician I see, I think straw man's the other side. Mm. They say things that they know are false because it appeases voters. 
Um, they'll make compromises with, say, the ignorance of voters and so on. Um, there are, I think, people I know that seem very Vulcan-like. Uh, I'd say the economist slash philosopher Jeff Brennan is a really good example of a Vulcan-like person. No relation, no, I assume. No relation. Uh, people always wonder if we're related because we have mm. the same last name and work on the same things. They're disappointed to find I'm not his grandson. Mm. But he's someone who I think is very Vulcan-like. An interesting thing about him is that when we, uh, talking him about this kind of stuff, he worries he's a hooligan, mm. um, which is a very Vulcan-like behavior mm -hmm. to be aware of and worry about your own bias. Interesting. So that that sounds pretty concerning about <clears throat> democracy. Now, uh, a lot of people in modern democracies are familiar with the concept of the invisible hand in economics, in mm -hmm. which everybody pursuing their own sort of narrow self-interest will produce an invisible hand that leads to continually positive outcomes. Now, they, and then they analogize that to democracy, and they assume that if we all act like hooligans, ultimately, we'll all be okay. And your thesis is um, that that's really a completely incorrect analogy. And so, assuming you think that's true, can you think of a better analogy? Um, in your book, you talk about reckless driving as, you know, it, reckless drivers are a danger to society because they're not competent drivers. And if people vote incompetently, that actually gives them political power over other people, which sometimes is a really dangerous thing. So I, I offer to you reckless driving to expand on, or maybe you've come up with another analogy uh, since then. Yeah, sure. Uh, in technical terms, as my my buddy Brian Kaplan, who wrote a book called The Myth of the Rational Voters, uh, says, uh, democracy is a commons, not a market. Um, so when we have what's called a mm -hmm. commons, it's a thing where yeah. everyone can collectively take some resource, but our individual inputs don't matter, and we have an incentive to overuse and destroy it. Um, a good analogy would be uh, the air, the climate. Um, I... I care about the environment, but I drive a gas-guzzling fast car because if I drive a Prius, it won't make a difference. Mm. Um, I don't, you know, I could set my air conditioning to one degree higher, and that would save energy, but it won't make a difference. That's really true of all of us, and so there's a collective action problem where individual inputs don't matter, but collectively our air, our behavior does matter. So a good analogy I like to use for students is something like this. Imagine you're in a class, uh, a 15-week biology 101 class, one of these giant classes they have at the University of California with like 1,000 students. And imagine the professor says, um, we're going to have one exam worth 100% of your grade 15 weeks from now. Uh, and because I'm an egalitarian, I'm not going to give you your grade or you your grade. I'm going to average all of your grades together. You'll all get exactly the same grade. Then the question is, how much would you study? And the answer is, they wouldn't. No one would study. In fact, there have been experiments done on this. In fact, no one studies. Mm. They don't learn anything. And the average grade ends up being an F. Mm. Um, that's effectively what's going on in a democracy, except instead of having a thousand-person class, you're having you know, two, potentially 210 million other people in class with you. Yeah, I've actually heard the same analogy used um, used about communism, but that's a topic for another day. But there, there, I know there's, there's reasons for optimism. Your book is really about a solution, so we'll get to that. I do want to ask you a couple more questions. Winston Churchill um, would say, he would retort to us that, that democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried to t from time to time. Is he right? Yeah, overall, I think so. I mean, I, I think of myself as both a fan and a critic of uh, democracy in the same way that I'm a fan and a critic of Iron Maiden. Uh, I think they're a really good band, but some of their albums are terrible. The albums from the early 90s. And when I'm around other, either Iron Maiden fans, because I don't have unbridled and complete enthusiasm for everything they've ever done, they see me as a massive critic and wonder why I'm at the concert. So I think I'm kind of like that with democracy as well. Uh, when you compare it to most of the other types of regimes that we've had, um, it tends to work better. Uh, I even have papers on that, make, arguing the very point myself. Um, democracies are empirically correlated with having a high degree of protection of civil liberties, having a high degree of protection of sort of economic liberty. 
um, having a higher than normal GDP per capita, having a higher income for the poor, and a number of other valuable measures. Now, just why they're like that is fiercely debated. So some people, some economists think that um, sort of a commitment to liberalism produces institutions which produce these good outcomes and also leads to democracy. Some people think that a commitment to democracy has a tendency to lead to these good outcomes. Some people think that there's a virtuous feedback cycle. So it's possible that it's just a correlation. But I think most of the social scientists working on this think that there's a deeper connection than that. Um, that said, uh, you know, there's no reason to rest in your laurels. We might think that, say, a particular auto manufacturer has a really good car, but it might nevertheless have a lot of flaws, and they're going to try to fix them and improve them over time. So if we can identify persistent flaws in democracy, and we know why those flaws take place, then we can start asking, is there a way to fix it that's worth it? Right, because the founders, as we talked about um, in, in earlier in this episode, um, the founders were very critical of democracy. I mean, I think it's Federalist 10 where, where James Madison says, you know, democracies have always been as violent in their lives as they – or as short in their lives as they've been violent in their deaths or something very, very close to that. So um, the founders certainly did not intend everything we're seeing today. They did not intend severe gerrymandering, um, money in politics, um, total faction, you know, falling in love with charisma. So I would ask you, how much of what we're looking at today did the founders try and, and fail to prevent? And then, of course, on the other hand, I'll ask you, well, what, what did they build that, that worked? But let's start with one question at a time. How much of what we're seeing today would have uh, horrified Alexander Hamilton and James Madison? Yeah. Well, I think Hamilton might have been pretty pumped with the last election. If you look at his favorite policies, he was very much a Trumpian. Um, he was a mercantilist, protectionist, anti-immigrant. Uh, you know, if you listen to the Hamilton uh, play, they keep pointing out that he's an immigrant, but Hamilton himself hated immigrants. Interesting. Okay. So he might have been happy with that. But as far as the rest of it, I think there were a lot of things they weren't anticipating. One is they were working with a model that they thought people would vote their self-interest. Um, it turns out they don't. Um, the reason they don't is because it doesn't make sense to. Uh, your individual vote matters so little that it doesn't make sense for you to vote selfishly. You might as well stay home and play video games. So people tend to vote to express their commitment to a team or to express their commitment to a sense of justice. They're nice but dumb rather than smart and selfish. Okay. So his a lot of the worries he had about factions turned out to be true, but not exactly because of the worry about self-interest in people trying to you know, uh, rig the system for their own benefit. The other thing was... The factionalism that we see is in part a product of our the type of voting system that we have. So in the U.S., in Canada, in most of the English-speaking countries, we have a voting system called first-past-the-post voting, um, which means whoever gets the most votes wins. And that statistically predicts that there will be two major parties. Um, it's unlikely there will be a third party. And that having two parties rather than, say, 15 or that you have in, say, say proportional voting systems increases the tendency to, for us to become ever more factional over time. So I think they were they, some of the things that happened, they just didn't even know. It wasn't back in the time they're writing. They didn't even know that there was this kind of stuff. There wasn't the mathematical proofs of this. The mathematical concepts that you used to prove it hadn't even been developed yet. Um, so that said, we do see increased polarization, but it's not sort of an interest-based polarization. It's rather a kind of expressive polarization. I, I see you as evil and not committed to the good, and my side is committed to the good and to justice. Uh, so yeah, that's a worry. Um, they, on the other hand, they did succeed in – they put in various kinds of checks and balances as we all learned in sixth grade. And those things do to some degree work. The main thing I think that the Constitution is meant to do is to slow down the process of decision-making. Uh, there's a nice book on this called Madison's Metronome saying that that's really what Madison was aiming at. It wasn't to 
really cr- check it in the sense of balancing and compromising everyone's interests, but simply to make it that when something bad happens, people don't immediately launch into a dumb response on the basis of their passions, but rather to force them to be slow and methodical so that passion can subside and cooler heads can prevail. To a certain degree, that's happened. Um, maybe not as much as they anticipated because Congress has delegated so much of its decision-making authority to the president and uh, to uh, bureaucracies that now we're closer to a system in which one person can unilaterally make a decision in the heat of the moment, uh, which is certainly not what they intended to happen. They thought they thought the president would do very little. So this is a this is a great segue uh, to turn to talk about solutions and specifically the solution that you advocate. So you 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 mentioned over and over you believe at least theoretically in epistocracy. Can you define what an epistocracy is as you see it? Sure. So the word epistocracy, uh, if, if democracy means the power of the masses, uh, d- epistocracy means something like the power of the knowledgeable. Uh, and so an epistocratic system is any kind of system where in one way or another, political power is apportioned by law according to knowledge. There's a wide variety of possible ways of doing this, um, some of which are much more offensive and less tenable than others, and some of which might actually be worth giving a real experiment. So the crudest form of it would be you only get to vote if you can get sort of a license to vote. And to get a license to vote means you have to pass some sort of test of basic knowledge. Um, Another system which uh, John Stuart Mill, the great liberal philosopher, early feminist thinker, author of a book called The uh, Considerations and Representative Government advocated is called uh, plural voting. Everyone gets one one vote, but some people who can sort of demonstrate epistemic muster get additional votes. Um, another system that's advocated by the uh, Mexican philosopher Claudio Lopez Guerra is what's called a voting lottery where by default no one gets to vote but you randomly select say 20,000 citizens from the masses. They and only they get to vote but before they get to vote, they have to undergo some sort of competence building exercise. Sounds like Plato's aristocracy. Okay. Yeah, but we're randomly selecting them, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then if they don't pass that exercise and they don't get to vote um, – there's a few other ones. You might have a system in which um, democracies get to choose policy, but you have bands of experts, say a panel of economists who have no power to make law, but can, uh, say, veto certain laws in the way that the Supreme Court has the power to veto laws. And finally, there's a few others, but the one that I think is the most tenable, the one that I think is worth trying, is what's called – I call it government by simulated oracle. I haven't thought of a shorter name for it yet. Uh, I probably should have. Uh, but – the way that that works is on election day, everyone gets to vote, including children. doesn't matter. You can let anybody vote. Um, but when you vote, you do three things. First, you tell us what it is that you want. Then you tell us what you know. You have a quiz of very basic political knowledge. And third, you tell us who you are because demographic factors like your skin color, your income, where you live, your religiosity, et cetera, these affect your voting behavior. When you have these three sets of data, you can then statistically estimate what a fully informed public would want. A fully informed but demographically identical public would have voted for. And then the idea is you do that instead. The nice thing about this is – and it's not even clear it really qualifies as epistocracy for this reason – In the end, we can't really say that, say, you got 7.2 votes and I got 6.4 and that, you know, she got 10.9. You are using this to sort of statistic, using statistics to extract knowledge from the masses, but you're not really literally empowering one person more than the other. Um, The outcome is sort of collectively determined, but without giving any individual person increased power. Uh, So the nice thing about this system, uh, at least in theory, is that the thing I'm describing right now where you... uh, you know, collect who they are, you find out what they know, and you find out what they want. 
This is what political scientists and economists have been using for at least like 30 years or so to estimate things like how does your skin color affect your voting preferences while controlling for other factors? How does knowledge affect your voting preferences while controlling for other factors? How does your income control things? So this is not, in a sense, not that newfangled. It's the thing that we already do in order to know what causes what. So we can use that to sort of estimate what we would want if we were better informed. The other thing you can do with it, though, is estimate what would we want if we were ignorant. Like if you imagine you wave a magic wand and everyone got a zero on this test, what would their political preferences be? The funny thing is multiple people have done this kind of method just to study voting behavior. And uh, we, we, the people of the United States, behave much more like a hypothetically perfectly ignorant uh, electorate than we do like a fully informed electorate. Okay, but so let let me repeat back to you what I heard. Make sure I understood that correctly. So essentially, when people vote, they they express their preferences, and then an enlightened um, political scientist with a statistics uh, background will will discern what the populace really wants, and then that's ultimately the the closest approximation to that would take power. Is that more or something less like that? Except uh, I wouldn't say make it just one enlightened political scientist because that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. You know, you're just going to. Uh, pretend to interpret the statistics uh, the way that helps you. So what you do with this data is you make it public. Um, you can make it anonymous. You put it on a website. Everyone can download it. Every newspaper can analyze it. The statistical method I'm talking about um, takes first semester graduate mm -hmm. level statistics. Every, like Lots of people can do it. There are people in this building, aside from me, who know how to do this stuff. Uh, so you make it all public. And then because of that, you can – it's – what what the math means is all open. It doesn't require any particular person to interpret it. The real tricky thing is not so much the math. It's uh, which questions go on the quiz. Mm -hmm. That's the question because, of course, uh, if you gave one person unilateral power over what goes on the quiz that we're going to use to weigh um, – to sort of calculate enlightened preferences, they might try to rig the quiz to get the outcome that they want. And I guess so. Yeah, that that is one concern, which we you know we're talking theoretically right now. The the other concern I have is it doesn't necessarily, at least as I understand it, get around the problems of of hobbits and hooligans. If people are stating their preferences, their preferences might not be enlightened, and so they they for example, you might ask, um, do you like protectionism? And they might say yes because their favorite politician said protectionism is good, and so they'll they'll express their preferences as pro protectionism, even though probably against their best interest. So am I, am I misunderstanding you that the problem of low information voters is, is still um, going to be captured by a simulated oracle? Yeah. So what this does is it fixes that problem without fixing the voters. Um, because when you do this kind of method, you can find out things like, uh, well, it turns out 90, say 60% of people favor protectionism. But if they were more knowledgeable, without, a, without changing their demographics anyway, if they were just more knowledgeable, would they still prefer protectionism? Mm. And we can see it disappear. I see. Uh, and so, in fact, actually, every single time someone has done an enlightened preference method uh, in any kind of study, regardless of which data set they're using, regardless of who they're looking at, they, if they ask the question about protectionism, they find that information increases support for free trade. Information is an independent variable. Controlling for all their factors makes you pro-free trade. So a good example of this would be take the uh, the Brexit vote. Um, imagine yeah. we had done this for Brexit. Yeah. Uh, it's really clear what would have happened. So uh, thanks to a polling firm called Ipsos Mori that like studied this very in-depth both before and after the vote, they asked people a number of questions uh, about what they knew. Uh, and so they asked them things like, what percent of the, uh, what percent of the UK is made up of European immigrants? Uh, how much money is the UK sending to uh, the EU for various kinds of welfare programs? What percent of foreign investment into the UK is coming from the EU as opposed to say China or the US or elsewhere? And what they found was that 
Um, the Remain voters and the Leave voters were both wrong. They all got the answers wrong. But the Remain voters got their answers much closer to the truth. So mm. in some of these questions, like the question about money going for welfare, the Remain voters overestimated it by about a factor of about 40, and the Leave voters by a factor of, I think it was about 100. Um, for the percent of your, uh, immigrants in the UK that come from the EU, the Remain voters seem to think they're just a wash in immigrants, uh, that every other person is an immigrant, whereas the Remain voters o also overestimated the percent, but they were closer. Some of the numbers were just really far off. They thought, they asked them, like, what percent of foreign investment comes from the EU? And the Leave voters thought it was about 1% when it's really about 50. So when you take that data, you look and you can say, okay, well, control for people's demographics and just look at the information effect and you see that the more informed you are, regardless of your background uh, conditions, the more likely you were to vote remain. That tells us something about Okay, knowledge of the facts that are relevant makes you support a particular policy. So if I understand you right, so preferences get weighted in this mathematical mm -hmm. formula by knowledge. So you're you're imbuing knowledge into the system as a sort of immutable yeah. positive coefficient. Yeah, that's right. And the nice thing about this too is uh, if you compare this to actual democratic voting – so one thing we have, a problem we have all around the world, including even in countries like Australia, where voting is mandatory, uh, even in Australia, they, they very proudly say on their website uh, that they have 93% turnout. It's a lie. Uh, it's actually about 81% because a lot of people don't register to vote and they just decide not to count them. And in democratic countries, what you find is that whiter, richer, um, actually the white thing is no longer true. That was up until recently. It used to be that uh, white people voted at higher rates than blacks. It seems not to be true anymore. But in general, in most countries, you find that the privileged race, the privileged sex, the privileged income class, more employed, pe better employed people, middle-aged people, et cetera, they're more likely to vote than people who have various kinds of disadvantages. So in a democratic system, you have a problem where privilege predicts voting turnout. Even in Australia with compulsory voting, it's still the case that you have the problem, just not as severe as you do here. Um, the nice thing about this version of epistocracy is if somebody now asks the question, oh, well, are they preferring this because they're knowledgeable or preferring this because they're white? Well, we can check. It's easy. We have all that data. Mm -hmm. You actually can answer that question definitively. Um, with a democracy, we can't do that. Got it. So let me ask you a quick question. So let's say you were elected governor of Maryland uh, in November of 2018. Uh, would you – and you were – had a huge mandate. You were – you know, you really persuaded the masses behind this idea. Would you try to implement it in Maryland in 2019? I think, you know, uh, I'm not a Leninist vanguard kind of person. I'm not a revolutionary. Uh, one thing we there, – there's this kind of problem in general in economics that we often know which institutions work better than others, but there's not what we call a good theory of social change. We don't really know how to make reform systems. And that applies to me too. So for that reason, I wouldn't just try implementing it right away willy-nilly see what happens. I'd want to try to experiment with it and kind of ease into it. So one thing to do instead would be um, rather than actually creating it as a law and then running, say, government by simulated oracle immediately, do it as a kind of advisory thing. Mm -hmm. Like maybe get a number of citizens and ha like ask them to vote, pay, maybe even pay them to vote on this kind of system and run this and then just see what would have happened had they voted this way rather than that. And we can we can use it as advice. We can say, well, this looks like an informed electorate would have supported this rather than that. So why don't we do that instead? Um, and then if, it, if we keep getting good results, then we might try passing it, say, at like a county level um, and then maybe move it up to a state level and then up to a national level. Now, depending on what kind of epistocracy you're talking about, there's a question of whether it's legal. So a system in which you only got the right to vote if uh, you passed a test, that I think 
given how the court interprets the 14th Amendment, that's just not going to fly. Um, this particular system governed by simulated Oracle, uh, because no one really has more power than anyone else, um, I think it's compatible with the 14th Amendment. I don't think it's really a system in which um, you and I have political inequality. Although if I live in D.C., then I then I have significant political inequality. But yeah, that's, that's another right. question. Taxation without representation <laughs> on all that, of the license plates. That's what we say. Um, okay. So is there is there a state – so I, li I like your idea of how you would pilot it, sort of test it before you make you – because know, if you risk sort of if you do something wrong, really discrediting the idea and it makes sense to slowly pilot it. Is there a state that seems like it would be a good, good place to try this? Yeah. In general, I recommend uh, – and it sounds paradoxical, but – you should try these things in the states that need it the least. Okay. Um, and the reason for that is that just in general, democracy doesn't work the same everywhere. It works better in Denmark than it works in the U.S. and it works better in the U.S. than it works in Venezuela. I think epistocracy would be the same. Um, there are other factors. Uh, there's this thing called generalized interpersonal trust and these other sorts of factors that determine how well institutions work. So for that reason, it I would not pick Louisiana. I would not pick Rhode Island. Uh, I wouldn't pick Maryland. I'd pick New Hampshire. And New Hampshire is very highly functioning and it needs at the least. They have a very good experience with town hall meetings uh, and demo like direct democracy on a local level. But for maybe statewide initiatives, try it there. It's a stable place. Um, it's relatively homogenous, which uh, even though I like diversity, there's some evidence that homogeneity helps make mm -hmm. uh, institutions work better. And uh, because it's high functioning, high trust, it's a place where you'll probably have fewer problems. And then that's where you test it. You don't test it in a very dysfunctional place like Louisiana. Mm -hmm. um, if you were to pick a country, I'd say New Zealand or Denmark, um, not the U.S., not France, even though the U.S. and France need it more than New But, but that really raises the, the big question. Let's say you showed it worked in New, in New Hampshire. You know, yeah. How would you persuade New York um, – to adopt it. The, the entrenched interests in New York would probably be the ones that would lose and so they would resist it with tooth and nail. Yeah, uh, that is a really good question and it's a really hard question. Uh, I think that comes back to that same problem we have right now. Uh, if you ask any economist what institutions lead to economic growth, they'll say uh, strong protection of private property, open markets, a strong and stable government that protects the rule of law. That, that's like the big three. Everyone agrees on that. And then you say, okay, so what does Zimbabwe need to do? You're like, it needs these three things. And who do we need to agree to that? Mugabe. Will mm -hmm. you agree to it? Never. Mm -hmm. So we don't know how to get people to adopt the institutions even when we know that they work. What kind of works over time is if certain countries try something and it clearly makes them flourish, it's clearly producing better results, then you have more on the ground movement to experiment with that and, and copy it. So you do see a lot of kind of copying – one country copies another because what that country is doing works. Yeah, I, I want to say um, I went to a talk last year by Bill Gates and he actually said the same thing. He says if you can show the government of say Ethiopia that all the countries around it are doing particularly well on something, that's really something that, that seems to really get their attention in a way. Uh, maybe other other tactics do not. Has there ever in the history of humanity uh, anywhere on earth been anything that resembles an epistocracy? Sure. Uh, so for a little while, technically speaking, I, and the, the real story behind this is a little bit more complicated, but because of the way that uh, seats were allocated in parliament, there was a sense in which uh, graduates of Oxford and Cambridge had extra votes. So you had something like a plural voting system in the UK up until about, I think it was like about 1911. Mm -hmm. But it was on such a small scale and with the House of Lords, which doesn't really do much, that it didn't really have any effect. So one clear problem with government by the knowledgeable is it's not sufficient to be knowledgeable. Richard Nixon is one of the smartest presidents we've ever had. You must also be virtuous. And so how you build virtuosity into an epistocracy, it seems to me, 
a challenge, a challenging question we won't get into. The, the what I do want to get in, um, you know, there are a lot of people that would really object to the idea of changing anybody's vote. You know, we some people really like the idea of one man, one vote because it connotes a sense of equality across the world. A lot of people fought or across the country, a lot of people fought really hard for the right to vote. And, um, you know, maybe the individual vote doesn't matter so much in the outcome, but it matters a lot in engagement by the people in their country and makes feel good. Um, now, you you mentioned a really cool analogy in your book where you talk about, you know, let's say there was a demon who um, you know, said, I curse on you, terrible government, unless you identify who is smarter and who is more knowledgeable and, and put them in charge. That's essentially, you know, arguably uh, what may happen in some democracies. And so yet people would object and say, you can't take away my right to vote. That makes me feel terrible. And, and, and um, if I were to quote your book, you say, you know, if people feel insulted, it's just too bad. They, they need to grow up. Um, do you – how do you feel about this, this feeling of engagement um, in a democracy that the individual vote confers? Do you think that's worth preserving? I'm not sure. Uh, so it's worth noting just as a caveat, some of these systems, epistocratic systems, don't end up giving you extra votes over me. Um, they do something else, in which case it's not clear that they actually eliminate political and uh, eliminate political equality. They might even technically qualify as democratic. That's like a philosophical question. But uh, I, I do worry about the sort of symbolic stuff that we attach to the right to vote. So we, as a matter of fact, in a modern democracy, we use the right to vote as a way of expressing in the public that we consider you a full member of our society. That's why as various groups gain status, one of the first things that happens is they get the right to vote. Um, it doesn't necessarily benefit them that much if you're a small group, if you're not an organized group, but we confer upon you the status through the right to vote. So it is a public expression of your membership in a society. Uh, I think it's also a culturally contingent um, sort of artifact of our way of thinking that we've, we've taken that act of giving you the right to vote and imbued it with all of this symbolic meaning, but it doesn't have to be there. You could easily imagine, as I say in the book, a society in which if you lack the right to practice plumbing, plumbing licenses are really the thing that confers status in that society and voting they just don't care about. Um, we don't, we're not like that, but we could imagine that. I have you imagine uh, a society in which everyone at age 18 receives a red scarf from the government. Um, and then imagine a new, like far kind of fundamentalist Christian group comes to power, and the first thing they do is they strip away, uh, say, gay people and their of their right to have a red scarf and wear it in public. And in that society, we would all march in the street. Well, not all, but I would I would march in the street and demand that gay people be given their red scarf back and say, "How dare you say that they're inferior by taking away their red scarf?" But we also recognize that that's just because we've taken that scarf and imbued it with all that meaning. Uh, in reality, it's a meaning we've attached to it. It's not built into it. So I think there's something like that's going on with the right to vote. Um, there, are plenty of, there are plenty of societies that perceive their government as legitimate despite lacking, uh, say, equal voting rights or lacking any kind of political democratic system at all. They think status is attached to other kinds of things. They uh, think that what legitimizes their government is something else, say it's performance. So I tend to think that people will see whatever they're accustomed to, whatever they've grown up with, they'll regard as legitimate and acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, changing from one system to another is difficult because people are against what's new. But you know, you see this with, say, like I work in a university. We have lots of students come over from China that has a different kind of political system from ours. And they can see that you know our system does certain things better. Their system does certain things better. But they don't come back and all become really ardently democratic. Their reaction is just, well, you know, 
democracy works for you and um, our system works for us and it seems to be performing pretty well and no worries. And they don't feel insulted by a lack of, say, equal voting rights that we would have here. Would you give up your right to vote if I could guarantee you better government? Oh, sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would give it up for if I, I'd sell it for like, say, 600 bucks. I would, I wouldn't, it's not worth that much to me. How we vote matters, how an individual vote does not, except in really special circumstances. So the point of distributing votes, I think the point of distributing voting rights a certain way and even equally is because you think that that is going to be a check on certain kinds of abuse or power. Um, so worry about certain kinds of epistocracy, not the one that I advocate, but some other kinds is that let's say you had a system in which only uh, you could only have the right to vote if you passed a test. Well, if we administered any political knowledge test right now, we know certain things would happen. Uh, white people would do better than black people on average. Um, educated people would do better than uneducated people, though for what it's worth, and I, I'm upset by this as an educator, um, education is a very weak predictor of political knowledge on its own. Mm -hmm. uh, getting a bachelor's degree predicts you get like one extra question right. Uh, rich people do better than poor people. Employed people do better than unemployed. Men would do a little bit better than women. People living on the coasts would do better than people living in the middle of the country. Middle-aged people do better than the young or the old. So the worry is that if you if you simply excluded people on the basis of political knowledge, what you'd have is a relatively privileged group of people would be the ones with the right to vote. Um, and then maybe they start voting in their self-interest or they might vote in ways where they maybe not selfishly, but they wouldn't understand the interests of the people that are excluded and it would disadvantage the disadvantaged even more. Whatever system you have has to do something to correct and avoid that problem. So you mentioned earlier, uh, first past the post voting is very problematic and I totally agree. And one of the things it causes is that individual votes really don't matter that much. and You wind up with a two-party system, which in a huge 330 million person democracy, it's unlikely that you will be well represented by either of the two candidates. Are there changes to the voting that would make the value of an individual vote greater and therefore potentially incentivize people to become more responsible with their vote? Um, I think, yeah, in a sense there is. So the best thing to do isn't so much about – before you even worry about first-past-the-post voting is to make more of the elections and more of the decisions local. Uh, Local decisions matter more. Um, we have a stronger incentive to be informed. Or we have a stronger incentive to reach a compromise. Um, our votes end up mattering more because there's fewer people voting. If you and I live together in a small town, we can both see that Main Street is full of potholes and the school is falling apart. And we have a strong incentive to really fix that. And we can talk to each other because we have something in common. It's more likely that democracy will function. Hmm. So I think democracy works best in the kind of New England town hall small scale type thing. It's when you get to the large scale national level decisions that it's not so effective. Um, as far as that goes, in terms of changing the voting system, uh, I would say proportional voting of some sort. I'm not really sure which one, but certain kinds of proportional voting systems where people can vote for a party and then the parties win seats in the based on the percentage that they get, um, that tends to reduce polarization. You get a wider number of parties in power. They have a stronger incentive to actually make compromises with one another. Uh, it changes because there's so many different parties. It changes the degree of hatred. So as Voltaire said, I think it was in letters in England, but it might have been somewhere else. Um, if you have only one religion, it will just dominate and oppress everybody. If you have two versions of Christianity, they'll constantly be at war with one another because they're just on the cusp of winning. And if you have 30 versions, then everyone goes home and lives in peace. Hmm. 
I think some things like that is true with in regard to political parties. If we have 30 real political parties that genuinely have a chance of winning seats, then you have you, it's kind of like having 30 different versions of Protestantism. You have to just learn to live and let live. You have to accept other people. You don't have the ability anymore to self-segregate into closed-minded communities and to continuously demonize the other side. So I would say do proportional voting. And then there's also something called Condorcet voting, which some people oppose because they think it's too hard for voters to handle. But in, in a Condorcet voting system, you you don't simply pick one. You rank everything. You like If you have 14 choices, you literally rank them from 1 to 14. And then it's very easy. I mean, there's a there's websites already set up at Cornell to do this for you. Uh, it's very easy to then have everyone participate. And you can say things like, in a pairwise comparison, A always beats B, and B always beats C, and C always beats D. So we can actually get some sort of relatively consistent ranking. Um, I think you can combine those two things and it would work better. So you mentioned proportional voting. Is there a country that immediately comes to your mind where this seems to function okay? Yeah, I mean, in most of Europe. Uh, Give most, us two countries. Germany uh, uses proportional voting. Sweden uses proportional voting. Finland. Uh, and it works well there? It does, I, th it does I think work. it works better, yeah. Switzerland has a kind of complicated system that's partly proportional, but they put certain checks on it. And in all these countries, you have a number of major parties and there's a weaker degree of antagonism. Um, there is a question about depending on how you implement proportional voting, that can predict you get like six major parties or mm -hmm. it can predict you get 15 or 20 or 30. Uh, I tend to think it's better to have a very large number of small parties than just a few large parties. I think I think I, I'm with Voltaire there. Just spread it all out. You know, it's funny you say that. So in, in Kenya, so Kenya and Tanzania actually uh, make your point pretty well. In Kenya, there's a few dominant tribes. There's the Kikuyu, the Kalenjin, the Luo, and, and it's kind of three or four, and they're always fighting. In Tanzania, there are dozens. I can't remember how many, but there are, there are upwards of 40 or 50 tribes, and they're much more peaceful despite the fact that they both speak Swahili and their neighbors, and they were uh, colonized uh, by similar people, although the Germans, I think, were in charge of Tanzania um, compared to the British, but wasn't as bad as Belgians. And so it, it kind of makes your point too. So I, I'd like to wrap up by asking you, um, you know, this is a tough time for people living in democracies right now. Actually, I have two more questions. The first question is really, really quick. I, I assume you've seen the movie Idiocracy. I have never actually seen it. Okay, Everyone asks me about it. I know what it's about concept. though, yeah. You really only have to watch the first 10 minutes. Yeah. But um, all right, well then I can't ask you if, okay, you know what it's about. Do you think we're living in something that approximates that dystopia? Uh, not exactly because uh, even if the average voter knows basically nothing, they're probably, they're, they're uninformed, they're misinformed, they're ideological. But um, Hamilton and Madison still got their way. Uh, we do have a system where the people who actually run the country are more knowledgeable and they have a certain degree of independence from voters. So they know that they can do things that will help the voters and the voters won't remember that they did them and punish them. So hmm. I'm thinking about Obama making certain representations to Ohio that he's going to say close down free trade, but then his adv economic advisors tell him not to do that and he hmm. doesn't. And it in fact helps the very people that are opposed to it. Hmm. Uh, so I think there is enough independence with the system of power here in DC that sometimes they do things that are good for citizens that the citizens oppose and the citizens don't know it. Hmm. They also often do things that are bad for the citizens that the citizens would oppose if they knew and, and they don't know it either. Yeah. So it's not quite idiocracy. Okay. Well, that's an optimistic way to end. So this is a tough time for uh, people living in democracies right now. So based on you know your book, we've, what we talked about today, whatever else you may have read recently, what are some final messages you have to people living in democracies at this challenging time? I would say two things. One is 
don't lionize politics. I mean, I was originally going to call the book against politics. Um, stop seeing politics as the height of virtue. And for most people, your life would be better if you minimize the degree to which you participate and think about politics and spend more time doing stuff that you actually make a difference on. Um, the other thing is just try genuinely to talk to the other side. And if, if you find yourself asking, why would anyone disagree with me? If I'm a Democrat, why would anyone vote Republican? And the only answer you can give is they're stupid and they're evil. Then you're a hooligan and it's a problem mm -hmm. and you need to start reading. It's very easy for you to find people who are indeed stupid and evil on the other side. But there are a lot of really well-meaning people who have the same values you do who are just trying to figure out these hard questions. And man, it would really be worth giving them a fair hearing um, and genuinely talking to them. So I, I want to actually push on that. So um, that's what a lot of people are saying right now. They're saying we just need to have more conversations with the other side. And and I would submit to you that a couple nice conversations are are not going to be sufficient, uh, especially in the in the cacophony that we live in right now. You might be nice to someone on the other side, but few other people will be. And and they're 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 going to conflate you too. So let's say you have a couple nice conversations and it, it's not enough. So give us one more thing that you can do. I mean, it's clearly opening, um, but uh, take take it a little bit further. I think uh, if, if conversations are going to work, you can try just reading the best of the other side. You know, don't watch Fox News, but uh, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming the readers are Democrats. I was going to say that. Don't watch don't watch Hopefully the news channels. Yeah, don't watch the news channels. Uh, read like the best literature on the other side. Read like the smartest people and see what they have to say, and read it with an open mind. Read it with the idea that like you, you're trying to like you're open to being convinced by it um, because there is something there. And I think when you see that people have some reasons for what they're doing, then you won't really see politics as an apocalyptic battle between good and evil. So I really like that. And I, I want to ask you for a recommendation. Can you recommend to our Republican listeners a, a good, honest Democrat, left-leaning person to read and, and vice versa for the other side? I'm going to re recommend one person for both. Uh, and he's not hes not even American. Uh, Joseph Heath wrote this really good book called Filthy Lucre. He's a professor at the University of Toronto. Um, it's called Filthy Lucre, uh, Capitalism for People Who Hate Capitalism. But what it's cool about that book is it sounds like it's left wing and it really isn't. What he does is he says, here are six things that the left thinks about markets that are wrong. And here are six things that the right thinks about markets that are wrong. Mm -hmm. So it's he's doing both at the same time. Um, and he's kind of correcting the fallacies that people have and the kind of cartoonish ways of thinking. Uh, well, Dr. Brennan, uh, we, we were thrilled uh, to have you on today. I think that was a very enlightening conversation. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Demo Crises podcast. And remember, the difference between impossible and possible is one. For more content like this, we'd be grateful if you did at least one of three things. Subscribe, rate us on iTunes, or donate to us on Patreon. Demo Crises is hosted by me, Rob Cohen, and produced and distributed by Goat Rodeo. Goat Rodeo.